Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I'm Howard Parker. If anyone has a bluegrass story, it has to be Dudley Cannell. He's had a long and wonderful musical career with the Johnson Mountain Boys, Seneca Rocks, classic recordings with bands like Longview, and performances with Hazel Dickens and, of course, a very long run with Washington, D.C.'s The Seldom Scene. As the scene approaches its 50th anniversary as a band, three of today's members, Dudley, resonated guitarist Fred Travers, and bassist Ronnie Simpkins, have been members of the band for 25 years. 25 years. Here's Katie talking with Dudley Cannell. Okay. Me and Ronnie and Fred all joined on the same day. This was this was in the days when when Chesapeake, which Mike Aldridge, T. Michael Coleman, Jimmy Goodrow, who wasn't in the scene, of course, and um, uh, Moon Klein left the scene. And and my my story that I've told you before, but I'll I have to tell it again. Is is I as I saw this this you know real breakup of a washington institution we got it you have to admit the seldom seen washington dc and seldom seen and maybe somewhat the country gentlemen are kind of synonymous with bluegrass in washington and so i called john i knew john just a little bit but i knew him well enough to 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 call him on the phone and and i called him basically to express condolences i said oh my god john i feel like there's been a death in the family and for washington bluegrass you guys have kind of set the bar for everyone and john's john john's remark was well we're not really disbanding we're just looking for a guitar player lead singer baritone singer dobro player bass player basically and, and and i know he meant it to be funny but and but and and i wasn't i did i swear i you'd think that i would i, I really call i didn't call to look for a job i called to express condolences and sadness to see the such a long-running institution from washington pass and and you know he and he made a typical John Duffy joke about it, and my response was uh, John, I think we ought to maybe we ought to get together and just sing sometime because I wasn't really doing much at the time. And uh, how was, long had it been before the the JMB had broken up? It was about the same time. Yeah, because we started rehearsals with with the scene rehearsal slash audition, whatever you want to call it, in June of nineteen ninety five. And the scene had a busy summer schedule, and and Chesapeake and the scene were trying their best to dodge each other's dates. But it, what John wasn't happy with that. He, he his feelings were: you're either in, or you're, or you're, or you're, or you're not. And he wanted he wanted commitment and and loyalty to the to the scene. And I think after what all the personnel changes that the scene had been through i think i think that i don't think he was wrong i think that was a perfectly fair expectation of these of this of this man so anyway we really didn't get to serious rehearsals until september of 1995 and our first gig was at the birchmere new year's eve 1995 and that's how i ended up in, in the scene, and I probably just completely forgot your original question, <laughs> but that's what... 25 years. 25 years. Yeah. Can you believe it? No. And the band's going to be 50 years old. 
And I think in November of 2020. So when people talk about the original Seldom scene, you and Fred and Ricky have actually been with the band longer than any of the original guys. Is that correct? That's true. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. By a long, by a long shot. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how long Phil was in the band, but I know Lou was in the band for like six years in the mid 80s. And well, now, now you know what? Might have to get out a piece of paper and pencil. I'm not sure about Tom and 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 Mike, it, it, how long they were actually in the group. Mm-hmm. But as far as like lead singers, lead singers, I'm, I'm certainly the longest. Right. I like it. You know, I, I do. I, I have I have not tired of the music. And this addition to of Ron Stewart. It's been it's been just fantastic. It's like it's like oh my god, the, the same thing happened to me. This is the second time in my musical career that this has happened. The 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 first let let me let me change that. It was the, it's the third time when Marshall joined the JMB in like 1986. He raised our level of play. I mean, he just, he fit. It's not that there was anything wrong with Larry Robbins' bass playing. Larry Robbins was a great bass player. But when Marshall joined, there was a certain lock that happened. And when Richard decided to leave and Tom Adams joined the band, the lock got tighter. And and the timing just became its own thing. It was something new. And it's something none of us had actually experienced. It was like... All of a sudden, though, there was, there was this the power uh, in, in the rhythm section that just drove everybody and made everybody want to play better. It just raised the level of play. Well, Ron Stewart, I think, has done that with, with, with the scene. He, he comes prepared. He enjoys the hang, which you guys being musicians, both of you, understand a lot of times the, the music could be great, but if you don't like the people that you're working with or if there's conflict personally, that's, then it's no fun. Then you're just doing it for the money. But this is this is just a great lock of, of talent and, and personalities that fit. And the fact that uh, he brought the fiddle to the scene, the scene has recorded with the, with the fiddle several times and it was always Ricky Skaggs as far as I know but uh, when would when he joined and brought his fiddle it it changed songs like uh, wait a minute and some of the and some of the ballads that we that were, were kind of known for it gave them a different kind of texture and made them fun to sing all over again because they were they they changed the whole texture of the song and so uh, I don't know how John Duffy would feel about that. John told me one time he didn't like a fiddle because the fiddle, he said, threw his singing off, his pitch oh. off. But he he's never he never played with a fiddler. I don't think like like Ron, who's who's just pitch perfect all the time. If if you can't sing with Ron, play a fiddle, then you you might as well pack it in because his intonation is so perfect. Well, let me ask you if there's uh, other things that are different. For you mentioned the hang. Mm-hmm. And I know that the seldom scene used to go to gigs. All would arrive in five different cars, yeah, and all. still but, do. <laughs> right, is that right? Yeah. But has anything else changed? I mean, do you all get together socially, or is it just at gigs, or 
or do you have uh, different, I don't know if you ever had rules about who set, made up the playlist, or has, has just the style of working together changed at all? Yes, it actually has. As far as, far as a set lists are concerned, let's talk about that first, because the scene was known for 90% of their career of never using a set list. When Ben started having, having uh, some mobility issues, we started putting together formal set lists. And, and the reason was to keep Ben in the loop all the time because if he, he, he was sitting in a chair and you know you didn't want to go, hey Ben, let's play, you know, because it just kind of looked a little unprofessional. So we started using formal set list, and then after Ben, you know, just needed needed to get off the road because of mobility issues, we kept we kept the set list, and and now that's Ron's job. Ron designs the set list, and there's a specific reason why why he was chosen to pick up that piece of the the responsibility pie is that he and Lou switched back and forth. with When Ben left, we also lost a guitar player, not only a banjo player, but a guitar player, that finger style stuff. And so Lou picked up that, picked up that uh, mantle. But what it does mean for a stage show, and this is where this is my thing, is is because I'm sort of the the I'm not the head of the band, but I'm I'm more of the presenter of the music, and so these guys have got to change instruments. And I thought it would make better sense for Ron, being that he has to go back back and forth between the fiddle and the and the banjo, and Lou goes back and forth between the guitar and the mandolin, for him. To put these songs where it was the most comfortable and less awkward you didn't want to see somebody you know put down the banjo pick up the fiddle put down the banjo pick up the fiddle so we tend to block things so there wouldn't be so much dis- distraction on stage in presenting the show so that's what he does and and Ronnie handles all the, and so that's that has been a change but the way that the scene is is you know we we're we're a democracy where everything is split equally. So Ronnie takes care of all the merchandise, totes it all over the country. I I I don't know what I take care of the accounting. That's what I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. I I do the accounting. So it's so everybody has these niches that so that nobody is overloaded with work. But you do most of the MC work. Yeah, I, I probably predominant. I'm the predominant MC, but but we've we've also changed that, and where everybody's taking a piece of that. So it's not one guy's voice in the front all the time, and that's actually been fun for me. Not only does it take some of the pressure off, but it also sets up a dialogue between the band members that's really funny and really and really fun, and and nothing is really canned or staged about it it is what it is some nights it's better than others just depending on the audience and and at our moods too you know it's partially partially on us but when we have a good night and and we're all ribbing each other and having fun on stage the audience kind of goes along with that even if we fall on our face even if we forget the words our our arrangements get screwed up it happens this band fortunately this is this is one of the best problems that a bluegrass band has ever had is a band that's been around this long we have a very very deep catalog and a lot of times it's harder to decide what not to play than what to play 
play mm-hmm. because it's 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 and uh, one of the real challenges that I feel that the band has faced in the 25 years that I've been in the band is is you know there's certain songs that people come to see the seldom seen to hear. And what are they? Uh, well, wait a minute, it would be one. Mm-hmm. Bottom of the Glass is another. Old Train is one. But we're at the same time that we're trying to pay homage and respect to the original founders of this group, we're also trying to introduce our own stuff and our own and our own personality to the music. And it's a it's a juggling act. And Ron's been very good, I think, at mixing old and new material. You know, there was a I think Katie, I told you this story a long time ago in another interview. There was a one of the things that always stuck in my mind, Van Morrison and Paul McCartney came to Washington DC to play two completely separate shows. Van Morrison had a brand new record out. Paul McCartney had a brand new record out. Van Morrison had no interest in playing Tupelo Honey or any of his old famous songs. Paul McCartney opened the show with a half a dozen new songs from his records and then just started playing all this Beatles stuff. And and see, my feeling is that music is it's, it's much more than just it, especially a band that's, that has a history, it's much more than just the songs. It, it's where these people were in their life when they first heard these songs, and maybe they were with their first sweetheart. Maybe they would just just go away to college, and they were hearing these songs. They relate to those songs, and it's not necessarily nostalgically. It's it's just that these songs are bigger than the songs. They're part of somebody's life that they were leading. And so, you know, you don't want to disrespect that, but we also don't want to be a cover band at the same time. So it's a bit of a juggling act to figure out, okay, what are we going to play tonight, fellas? You know, that kind of thing. So tell us about the new album, Changes. Well, that was... that was. How a, long had it been since your last album? Probably about two or three years. Okay. So for us, that's a we're right on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, it was... Um, this this was an interesting record in the sense that, and I'm not trying to sell records here. I'm just I want to tell you the story though, is that um, we've always done our own producing. We've had we've had uh, outside production help with Billy Wolf, our longtime engineer, but he he was pretty hands off. This record we were approached is on a concept record for Rounder. This is our first record for Rounder from Ken Irwin. He's one of the three original founders of Rounder Records, and and he said it's easier for them to market a, a concept record than just you know 12, 14 bluegrass songs. Mm-hmm. And initially, I remember the meetings well. It was in it was in Lexington, Massachusetts, and he and Bill Nallen the other founder came to came to our show and they presented us with this idea and initially i felt just a just just a little insulted by the idea because we always done things our own way but the more i got to thinking about it the more i got to thinking well those songwriters from that 60s 70s period towns van zandt john primes bob dylan all those guys those guys were writing some deep material i mean really thoughtful interesting material and so as time went on i really did come around to the idea of yeah let's because there the feeling being that we would be introducing some young people to maybe some music they've never heard 
and to to our age group we would be presenting songs that kind of like what i just said that mean something to them just done in our own style and so that's that's how this record came to be and how it came to be recorded but the 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 uh of sort of a side story here ken sent me like 70 songs to choose from and i'm going oh my god i'm overwhelmed stop it <laughs> don't send me any more songs because they're all good they were all good songs so to to pick and choose 12 or 14 songs among the 70 that he sent was uh, uh, kind of a labor of love you know and we got together at, at my house and some worked and some didn't and the ones that worked we recorded and the ones that didn't we put on a back burner for maybe some other time you know but uh, that's sort of the story of the record changes and as far as I know the scene's never done a record quite like this one you know where we've purposefully gone out and tried to find writers that that spoke to us personally you know and and some of these songs i'd never even heard of before i mean i learned them for the for the sessions to be perfectly honest with you i'm still learning them i i think i've memorized about four (laughs) so i've got a way i've got i've got homework to do but um you know, the, just the, the quality of those songwriters, and I don't know whether it was the era or, you know, because we're coming out of the 60s, you know, when, with uh, civil rights, women's rights, uh, all kinds of changes socially in, in the United States. These, they, they came of that era. And, and I think the songwriting represents the sort of, I don't know, turmoil, but also the good things that were coming out of it, too. So it, it just felt good to do these songs because they're so well done. Well, you listen to such a variety of music. I mean, if anyone follows you on Facebook, you're always digging into the vaults and coming up with stuff that, man, where are you finding these things? But you, what were you listening to in the 60s that you were missing some of these? I, I, well, in the, in the, in the late 50s, I'm, I'm six, I'll be 64 in February. And the, in my, early, my earliest musical uh, memories are the music that my parents had and their record collections. And my parents liked the Stanley Brothers, Flattens Grugs, and, and, and the bluegrass world, but they also love, you know, Buck Owens and Ray Price and Jim Reeves and all those all those kind of people. So those those were the records I heard as a kid. But in the mid '60s, after the civil rights uh, movement had gone through, I, I was part of the early Great White Flight. In other words, we it was an all white uh, community. It was kind of low income housing and and uh, sometimes subsidized housing so so a black family would move in and two white families would move out it was a big apartment project and and so i went from hearing uh, buck owens and and stanley brothers coming out of windows no air conditioning so everybody had their windows open in the summertime i went from you know buck owens and the stanley brothers to otis redding and james brown and i thought wow that's pretty good stuff too i like that Mm -hmm. so i i started to get into that into that uh kind of soul rhythm and blues world and 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 the bluegrass got put on the back burner for me for a while and i was also listening to um 
the rock music uh, that my peers were listening to, the Jimi Hendrixes and Creams and people like that. And I didn't realize it at the time. And this wasn't until much later that I realized, geez, these guys like the Yardbirds and Cream and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix, they were all borrowing heavily from the Southeastern blues traditions. And they were just, they were covering everybody because people in the United States hadn't heard those songs, or at least the white people hadn't heard those songs. And so, so I... I um, Unless they were done by Pat Boone. Oh, God. Tutti Frutti? Right. That I, is an embarrassment. It is. <laughs> That's terrible. It is. <laughs> but uh, but you're right. No, I I totally I totally agree with you. But it's it's the and and then I think I think part of that blues experience is what led me back into bluegrass because if you think of people like like Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams and Bill Monroe, they were all heavily influenced by the blues. And so it was kind of a no-brainer to start pulling some of that stuff into my own musical catalog or something. So, but when when the disco uh, uh, sort of craze hit, I quit listening to the radio because it just didn't move me. It, it didn't hit me. It was to me, it was too overly produced. And I found and I found people like uh, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, John Prine. They they that that music spoke to me more. And it wasn't much of a jump to go back into the bluegrass world because that's, you know, I mean, there's a, it's acoustic for one thing. And a lot of those guys used banjos on their records and they were also influenced by the Stanley Brothers mm -hmm. and Flat and Scruggs and Bill Monroe. And if you, there, Bob Dylan had a show on, on XM. This has been years ago now. It's been off now. They, they did a hundred episodes and and he talks a lot about his musical influences on the show he doesn't play any of his own stuff he plays the stuff that influenced him as a kid in hibbling hibbing uh, minnesota and he loves the, the stanley oh i got a, i got a song i got a story for you i got speaking of bob dylan and the seldom scene this is a here's some inside stuff for you bob dylan had played constitution hall and, this, and it was on a Thursday night, and the scene, of course, were at the Birchmere. And and uh, so Bob Dylan's either his manager or the driver said that uh, Bob wants to come see the seldom scene. Said uh, said well they ju they they ju they just finished, and he said would you go ask him if they do another set, just one more set, so that Bob could you know hear him and maybe sit in. And, and and so they went to John Duffy, and John said, well, they said, John, Bob Dylan's on the phone. He wants to come see you guys. Would you mind playing one more set? And John said, I don't think so. <laughs> said, I, Nancy and I have a sup of chili in the refrigerator at home, and I think I'm just going to go home. We'll have to make it some other time. <laughs> But anyway, and, uh, and John, and unfortunately, and Ben who, told me who this Who went way. back to the telephone to say no? <laughs> Remember Mary Beth, who used to work at the Birch Mirror? Yes. And she also worked at Bias. She was the unfortunate oh, person. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was, that was just sort of John's way, but the rest of the band didn't know about it. I think, I think if, if, she'd, if she'd gone back or whoever had gone back to t ask John, I think they would have said, yeah, let's, 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 let's do this. This could be really fun. Mm -hmm. But John didn't tell anybody. He just went home <laughs> to find that chili drink in his refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> One
one that he wasn't carrying with him. No, right, exactly. Exactly. Well, now when you went with J.M. Johnson Mountain Boys, how much research and study and all did you have to do to come up with all those old songs that you all? We had three record collectors in the band. It was it was David McLaughlin, myself, and of course Eddie Stubbs, mm-hmm. who's had a long career in radio now. And we all came at it kind of from different angles. I came at it from from uh, I, I love the Stanleys have always been my sort of my heroes. I brought that influence. Eddie brought the Flat and Scruggs sort of feel to the music, and Dave's all over the place. Dave's always had very broad taste. So we had a, a mountain of material to choose from. I mean, we dug into people like Ray Price and Webb Pierce and the Johnny and Jack, and and we had all these, we'd collected all these live tapes, all of us, all three of us, of uh, live bluegrass shows from park shows like Sunset Park and New River Ranch. I should talk about that a little bit. The and and the and like the mid to late fifties and early sixties, uh, the only place that a country uh, that a bluegrass act could perform was usually bars or schoolhouses, and but there were these two park shows just outside the Washington D.C. area: Sunset Park in Pennsylvania, New River Ranch in Rising Sun, Maryland, that brought everybody through. I mean, from Hank Williams to Hank Snow to the Stanleys to everybody, and they they were very friendly to recordists and when i say recordist i mean people that would show up with a reel-to-reel tape deck and they were using only one microphone you know and worked around a single microphone so these tape enthusiasts also brought their microphone so if you ever look at some of those pictures from the 50s it looks like they're getting ready to do a press conference or something <laughs> there might be a half a dozen dozen mics on stage and there's some funny one where carter said now which one of these am i supposed to sing into <laughs> but so there there's this there's this huge collection of of live recordings of all these bands and they did different stuff it wasn't just their record material they did you know carter family songs and all kinds of stuff that they liked and they grew up with and it's a live show so it didn't matter they weren't they weren't thinking that this is going oh this is going to be you know recorded for posterity it, they were just playing the songs that they liked mm-hmm. and we had met people that had collected these and we also dug deep into those live recordings um just another broken hearts one that pops into my mind um, right away that was a carter family tune that that we recorded and junior sisk later later recorded two based on our version so so he says i think his is better than ours but so he says that's where he got it from well you really have met uh all of them all of the great stars and stuff and i mentioned earlier hazel dickens mm-hmm. um tell us some of your experiences with hazel so katie my early experiences with hazel Okay, I'll tell you. Here's how I here's how I became familiar with the music. There used to be a station in Baltimore, but every week they would play the Green Rolling Hills of West Virginia. Played it every week out of Baltimore, and I used to listen to their show, and the, to, to that show, 
And I thought, wow, boy, that sounds authentic. You know, that's that's the real deal. That's that mountain whale. And not not that different from Ralph Stanley, who, you know, you knew he wasn't from around here when you heard him sing. He had a keening sound mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and mountain. Yeah. Had that had that sort of I, I almost refer to it, well, I do refer to it as almost kind of like a mountain whale. It's not yelling, it's singing, but it has this sort of wailing sound of the mountains you know maybe i'm being a little melodramatic here but anyway so i i became familiar with hazel and i used to i saw her one time at uh, glen echo park she played on one of the stages and i don't think that it was the the washington dc folk music association's festival i think it was just a kind of a one-off and I, I was afraid to meet her, but I, but she was, this is after the Alice days. This is after the Hazel and Alice days. And one of the guys who was one of the early contributors to Rounder Records was a, was a, was a, is now a retired DC firefighter named Walt Saunders. Mm-hmm. And he writes the, a column for Bluegrass Unlimited. He certainly does. He's still very, very active in the music. And I, and, and at the time, uh, Rounder approached him, and this is the very earliest days of Rounder. They right, they they uh, mm-hmm. approached him to, to write liner notes because he's a he's a good writer, as you know. And I think one of the first ones he did was Johnny Wisnett, a banjo player from our area. Another one was the Bailey Brothers, Charlie and Danny. He 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 wrote liner notes for them. And, and we got to be good friends with him because he liked the fact that we were doing this old sort of retro kind of music. So he and his wife, Ruby, used to come out and see us play all the time. And so he called Ken Irwin, again, going back to Ken. I've known Ken for a long time now. He called Ken. He said, I have this band you have to see. You're going to really like these guys. So Ken came down. He was traveling, I think, to Nashville and stopped at Walt's, probably spent the night on his floor knowing Ken and knowing Walt <laughs> like I do. And by God, it, 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 he came to a show at this place in Sykesville called Susie's. And I mean, this is this place was this place was kind of just a tad on the seedy side. This is one of those kind of places where they dust the floor with sawdust so people could slide around and dance. And they danced to bluegrass. And they had these Sunday afternoon shows. And we played from four to eight. And then the country band and the bikers would would switch. And then the, a new audience would come in and a new band. So we're there playing, and Walt comes in with not only Ken, which was nerve wracking enough, but with Hazel. Because mm-hmm. Hazel doesn't get the credit that she deserves for being almost like a fourth rounder person. She became Ken's go-to for A&R work. Like they they would get they would get tons of cassettes in the mail for people because they were. They kind of them and they and Sugar Hill and probably Rebel too. They raised the bar on on bluegrass records. The you know the cover work, the historical liner notes on the back, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I, just to make a, I guess I've already made a short story long here, but just to finish up. So Hazel came, came too, and so we met and we sat and we talked and we arranged for the Johnson Mountain Boys to go up to the Boston to play for the rest of the Rounder crew to see if we they were interested in a contract with us and so they were 
so we did our first couple of records for Rounder, and then and since Hazel kind of liked the old style of pr presentation of music too, she wanted us to back her up. So we started we started touring with her, and and uh, and and backing her on some of her records, but a lot of her live shows. We played on a lot of her, a lot of her live shows around, and and so we'd be going. It was almost like a uh, almost like a package show. Hazel Dickens and the Johnson Mountain Boys. We'd do our thing. Hazel would come out. We'd back her, and then then we go to the next show. And she was living in the Washington she area lived by this in, time. She lived in. Uh, she lived uh, the whole time I knew her. She lived uh, just at the edge of Georgetown, right up on oh, Wisconsin Avenue. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. She lived just off Calvert Street and Wisconsin Avenue, like mm -hmm. you said. And so she um, initially came up from uh, the coal camps of West Virginia. She followed her brother from down in West Virginia to Baltimore for look for factory work. And of course, as, as a lot of people know, that there was a great migration from Appalachia to the, the, the cities like uh, Dayton, Ohio, and Baltimore, Maryland, and places, uh, Detroit, where they could find factory work. And, and at night, they would go hang with their fellow mi migrants, basically. You know that it, that had come up looking for work, and so she became, <clears throat> she quote unquote called herself the girl singer, and she played the bass, uh -huh. and and she would do the latest hits of the day, the Kitty Wells, and whatever whatever she was called on to do, but I think that she really hit her stride when her and Alice started recording together, and she started really developing her songwriting, because I think I think Hazel. Much like uh, WAMU raised the bar on pres presenting bluegrass music to uh, a cosmopolitan audience of Washington, Baltimore, D.C., I think Hazel raised the bar on songwriting because she started writing socially conscious songs like Don't Put Her Down, You Help Put Her There, and, and, and a whole bunch of stuff like that, You'll Never Put Us Down. And and she was she was political, she was. Uh, she actually went out with the miners on uh, strike lines, didn't she? Yes, she did. Mm -hmm. And she's heavily featured in a movie that I would recommend all our listeners to, to check out. It's it was produced in the seventies. It's called Harlan County, USA, and it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And it's about a coal strike. And, and West Virginia, and, and her mark is all over that uh, musically. She wrote songs specifically. I think she told me once it was the first time that she would wrote on contract. In other words, they were looking for songs to play, to, to open the movie, to close the music, and also intersperse within the scenes. And so she wrote songs specifically for that project. And I never really got real deep in the weeds with her on how she approached that. I don't know if they would play her a piece of the movie and she would write to that or not. I don't know. I, I wish I know I wish she was still alive because I'd love to ask her that. I'd be interested in that. But uh, she uh, she helped introduce us also to that um, kind of academic world of, of, of bluegrass, especially in the Northeast. You know, in the South, where the people just grew up with it, they loved it and they respected it. But the people in in some of the New England and places like that, it was almost like they they loved the music and they were passionate about it, just like the people in the South. But it was also a bit more than that. It was a bit more folkloric. 
uh, scholarly, ac- scholarly, academic, and and it was really interesting playing for the, these audiences because first of all they were extremely polite. They they looked at I don't think they looked at us quite as a museum piece. That's too strong, but they looked at us of they looked at the JMB and Hazel as purveyors of something that had come before them. And the JMB could get away with it because although we were not kids, we were in our early twenties. We we had really studied this this music. It, it was it was more than just playing a song. It was and I, I think I could I think I could probably speak for all the guys in the JMB era. It was also we were also interested in the culture in which produced this music. And so, you know, we paid homage to the Stanleys by going to McClure, and we went to, you know, Bean Blossom, Indiana, and we did all kinds of stuff because we wanted to absorb not just the music, but the culture that produced it. What? But you know what was really interesting about Hazel is there were a, a lot of, she was complicated, and there were a lot of different sides to her personality. And and I mean she could she could get up in front of a bunch of politicians and coal coal organizers and people like that, and she could she could talk that talk that talk, you know that yay miners yay unions we got to get these politicians out of office so we could bring in you know new people, but when she got on our after we'd been in our motorhome same one by the way <laughs> we were on our way we were on our way back we didn't tell her about the brakes I wondered. <laughs> but so we're driving in this pretty heavy snowstorm and and you know after the danger had kind of died down and we were on a highway le- leaving chicago hazel really really became one of the boys i mean because she'd been there you know, she 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 was a brilliant brilliant lady, but she loved nothing better than to get down in the weeds with you know old country music and stories and and she went to those uh, those park shows with Hazel and Mike Seeger back in the day at New River Ranch and Sunset Park. So she had um, she had a she really had a background in this stuff. You mm-hmm. know, not not just just being from West Virginia, but seeing these these acts that she went to see when she lived in you know in Baltimore right she never she never really left the 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 mountains of of West Virginia I mean she was a sophisticated smart lady but she was she was not a, a Baltimore person she was not a Washington person she was a West Virginian who knew knew how to live in different cultures and societies. I've heard people say that bluegrass is more than just the music. It's a business. It's, you know, it is the music, mm-hmm. but it's a community. And mm-hmm. it seems that you enjoy the people almost as much or maybe more than the performing of the music. I, lo- I, I Actually, Katie, to be honest with you, both are right. I love I love the I love the hang. I love I love the the people that support us. I love performing. You know what has gotten tougher on me though, as I, as I said, I'll, I'll be sixty four in February. The traveling's got a little harder on me. You know, just physically, it's it's it. I need downtime when we've been on the road for a while. But I I think that's I don't think that's I haven't lost any enthusiasm for the music or the people that support it. But my 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 body takes beating sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, 
staying up late and all that well just kind of completely turning my schedule around you know because i i have a i have a day job archiving uh digitizing recordings and and i do that during the week and and i'd get up really early in the morning for that to try to beat some of the washington dc traffic which i'm finding is nearly an impossible task but uh, it used to be a rush hour now it's just all day it's it's really all day yeah but uh, you know, I, I love both jobs, and I'm I'm content. At a, I, I like where I'm at right now in life. You know. And where do you do your digitizing of music? What's the name of the organization? It's the National Council for the for, for the Traditional Arts, and we had for a long time we had been had a contract with the Library of Congress that all the material was going to the library, but. Everything that's coming to me now is native digital. In other words, let me let me, let me go, go back a little bit. When I started working for them in September of 2000, it was a I was faced with a room full of open reel tapes, dats, and cassettes that had been court, recorded since the early 1970s. And the Library of Congress was interested in the collection, but Joe Wilson, who some of your listeners may be aware of, he didn't want to send it to the library. He he wanted to do it in-house. He didn't, the, apparently the story goes, that he took a box, uh, a pallet of tapes to the library and kept calling him, asking him how, how, the, how the transfers were going, because they wanted copies for themselves, too. And they didn't get the response they were looking for so Joe went down and Joe could be feisty it's another brilliant guy he took his tapes back he said well if you're not going to do anything with them I want them back so he brought them all back and so the library came like within the next year or so after that and said look we're really interested in this collection and Joe said okay you're you're welcome to it but we're going to do the digitization on our own and they hired me to do that well and so that's you're the right guy for that job well i i have some background in a lot of different kinds of music because i like a lot of different kinds of music so yeah i it turned out that i was a i was hopefully a good hire for them but everything that's coming in to the ncta offices now is, is already coming in digital it's, it's is this a government agency or is it um yes and no it's 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 a non-profit agency but we get a fair amount of our operating capital from the neh and the nea mm-hmm. so that of course is <coughs> government so the way that it the way that it had worked was you know i would digitize it catalog it and then they would get digital copies of everything on hard drives and 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 the original material, and we kept copies for ourselves. But now that things are coming in native digital, the, the word here's the catchphrase these days: it's not considered endangered recordings like reel-to-reel stats and cassettes deteriorate. Native digital recordings that are coming in from the field, they're dropped on hard drives and you know multiple backups and and so they 
and frankly, there's just not a lot of money to do that kind of work anymore. Mm-hmm. So basically, that's uh, uh, I, I work myself out of a job, but that's okay because I feel like the work that I did was important and and I enjoyed it as, as well. Well, uh, before Howard turned on the tape recorder, or sorry, the digital recorder, um, <laughs> the real to real, yeah, the real to real, and the razor blades <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh, you and I were talking about being native Washingtonians mm-hmm. and. I get really uh, mad when people are always bad-mouthing Washington, you know, official Washington. But there's a, official Washington is involved in a lot of things for our music. And you mentioned, you know, National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for Humanity. The Library of Congress puts on a lot of concerts and preserves a lot of music. Smithsonian. Uh, Smithsonian, Folkways. Uh, Ralph Rensler, of course, who's no longer with us, but he was instrumental in a lot of that, saving Bill Monroe's career. So there's a lot of good that ha- official Washington, the Kennedy Center. Just speak of Ralph Rensler, I'd throw I would throw uh, uh, Doc Watson into that can, into that can too, because he's the one who brought Doc to uh, New York to mm-hmm. play all those folk clubs. Right. So Washington does some good. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I love. I, you know, I, I, we're this, this going back again to what Katie and I were talking about before we turned on the real to real recorder. <laughs> was that was the you know the fact that I you know I've I've traveled a lot in my in my career, but I've never lived outside of Montgomery County, Maryland, which Montgomery County is a kind of has become a bedroom community to Washington D.C. And I still get the willies and a thrill. My wife works for the Smithsonian Sally. And when when I come up to visit her, come down to visit her, you come up, and for you people that maybe have never been to the to to, to their nation's capital, there's a there's a Smithsonian Metro stop. And when you come up the escalator, you're looking right at the Capitol. And if you bend your head just a little bit, there's the Washington Monument. And just beyond that is the Lincoln Memorial. And I, st- I, I got chills just thinking about it, you know, because it's right on the National Mall. And, and if, if you can ever find the time to come up and visit some of these um, historical monuments and the Smithsonian Museums and the and Art they're Galleries. they're all free. They're all free. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's really worth the trip. And and you know I know a lot of people, Katie, and I. And I'm not going to badmouth my own friends. I I will not do that. But I know people that are also born and raised in Washington that have never gone to the city to visit or or to utilize any of these national treasures that we have. And I think that's probably true of a lot of places around the world, though. But, uh, you know, we see, when you, co- when you come to D.C., you see these people that have probably scrimped and saved their lifetime to offer this to their children so that right. their children can experience this wonderful culture here. And, of course, that was Dudley Cannell chatting with Katie Daly. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed from SoundCloud, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and katydaily.com. Thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.